I'm going to need your help. I'm a little nervous because I'm used to speaking to, uh, to boards of directors of companies, and they don't really want to hear any humor. <laughs> so I'm not going to be very humorous. I was talking to Sam Hughes uh, before the first service, and he said, boy, I'm looking forward to seeing you up on the big stage there. And uh, how's it feel to how's it feel to be filling Rich's shoes? And um, I thought about it and said, you know, it's probably like an actuary filling Leno's shoes. <laughs> so bear with me, all right? And in fact, I, I, I know uh, Rich actually sent me an email last night and said, I'll be praying for you for tomorrow. And we all know what that means. Rich is really nervous. <laughs> all right? So do me a favor, when you see Rich next week or before next week, tell him it was great, even if it wasn't, so he doesn't feel too bad, all right? Um, Rich asked me to talk about two things. One is um, a little bit about how Renaissance got started, and the other thing is about my own journey to becoming a Christian, becoming uh, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, these two things happened about 20 years apart, um, but there is a lot of connection between the two of them. So I will... Uh, take you through both those stories, and uh, show you how they connect. But first, I'm going to start somewhere else. I want you to come with me uh, back to March of 1999. My wife, Nancy, got a call from Joan Smith, one of her close friends that she had known since junior high school. Joan was in our wedding, and she lived with us for a few months after college, in fact. Joan was calling Nancy from the emergency room of the Boston Children's Hospital. Her daughter, Jackie, who's four years old at the time, was undergoing an MRI at the moment to identify the cause for Jackie's slurred speech and increasing clumsiness. Joan was worried and had called for comfort. Nancy prayed with her on the phone and told her to keep in touch. Well, at about 11 that night, Joan called back and she was utterly distraught. Jackie had an inoperable brain tumor and the doctor, doctors gave her no chance to live more than a year. They started radiation therapy immediately to try to buy a few months. And over the next few months, we were in close touch and visited numerous times with Joan and her husband, Dan, and her daughter, Jackie. In fact, Nancy drove our daughter, Amanda, to Massachusetts one day so she could paint Jackie's fingernails green. So something Jackie wanted. And we watched this clever and artistically gifted child lose her ability to walk, to draw, and to finally speak. We watched her incredibly dedicated mom and dad pour out all the love they had on her. Joan and Dan struggled with how to talk to Jackie about death. They didn't believe in life after death, so what comfort could they offer her? The pastor at the church they attended advised them that death was an adult issue, and it shouldn't be discussed with a child. We tried to help. We sent a tape recorder to Jackie at the hospital and included all kinds of tapes, including children's stories about God who loved her. We talked with Joan and Dan. We wrote a prayer, sent it to them, and Dan thanked us for us. But he told us he wished that our, he had our faith, that we did, but he didn't, and he couldn't. On a Friday morning, eight months after Jackie's diagnosis, Nancy got the call. Jackie had died in the night, surrounded by her loved ones. Although we knew it was coming, we were still stun stunned and saddened. Joan told us about the family gathering around her bed, giving permission to Jackie to 
Go Over the Rainbow. You see, The Wizard of Oz had been one of Jackie's favorite movies, and this was how they talked to her about dying. The funeral was one of the most beautiful and touching funerals we've ever been to. It was a truly a celebration of Jackie's short life and her wonderful personality. Yet there was no talk of life after death or of seeing Jackie again. There was no talk of God and his love for us and his sadness that one of his little creatures was having to suffer and die. In fact, the only time the word God was uttered this whole funeral was when we sang the third verse of Amazing Grace. But Joan told Nancy afterward that after Jackie had died and after the hospice nurses had washed her body, Joan spent some last few minutes with Jackie alone. Joan opened Jackie's eyes one last time and looked into them. Joan said that when she looked into Jackie's still eyes, she could see that something was missing, something that had been there right until the moment of death. She could only conclude that this something was Jackie's spirit, her soul. And Joan said that maybe, just maybe, there was something eternal and spiritual to Jackie. And that maybe there was some truth to the faith that Nancy had shared with her. Now, Joan and Dan have been very successful in so many ways. They're both Ivy League educated. She joined a successful high-tech company early on and was there when it went public. They consider themselves quite spiritual. They've been very involved in their church, even though they don't believe that there's a real personal God. To them, God is whatever you want him to make him, want him to be, or want to make him. Only the rituals and the morals are important. But when it mattered, when their world came crashing down on them, when their four-year-old daughter was dying, their education and their success and their involvement in their church couldn't do anything to make their child better. Their beliefs gave them no true hope. We were saddened that this family, our friends, so full of love, had no hope of seeing their daughter again, no hope of eternal life. Over the years, we had open and deep discussions with them about our faith, and they've been very respectful of our point of view. They have seen us apply our faith in good times and bad times over more than 30 years. But in their minds, our faith was easily dismissed as an eccentricity, the cult of Robbie and Nancy. They never really had an opportunity to see that our faith was shared by other well-educated, successful people like them or like us. We wished that there were some church near them that we could take them to where they could meet other people of faith who were like them, who worked with them, who played with them, shopped with them. But the only churches that we found were so inwardly focused and so culturally different from them that it seemed futile. We felt they'd get pat answers to their questions and that their more eclectic lifestyle and thinking would have been frowned on. Their honest questions would not have been addressed thoughtfully or even welcomed. And then it hit us. Right here in Summit, Short Hills, and our surrounding communities are thousands, thousands of Jones and Dans. Highly educated, successful, thoughtful people, working hard, raising their families, who have never had an opportunity to explore their faith in true God, in an environment that welcomes them and meets them where they live. This is what we designed Renaissance to be.
period, full stop. Now, about six years ago, Nancy and I and four other families, Kathy and Tammy Tobich, Carol and Kate Webster, Dan and Nancy Fleming, and John and Michelle Barker, who now uh, live in Connecticut, did something very radical. We left very fine local churches and the comfort of our friendships and our religious routines in those places to start a completely different type of church in this community. Different not in teaching. No, Renaissance is very orthodox there, right in line with any traditional conservative Christian church. Just check out our statement of faith on the website if you have any questions about that. But Renaissance has a very different mission. From the outset, Renaissance was designed not for Christians who are established in their faith looking to be comfortable. We didn't start this church to create a home for ourselves or our families. Rather, Renaissance was designed for those who are not Christians, who do not believe in God or who do not know what they believe about God or Jesus Christ, but those who are wrestling with their faith and searching for answers. At every step, we tried to think about our friends and neighbors and create a place where they would want to come and meet their creator. Joan and Dan and Jackie were inspirations for our starting Renaissance. Let me tell you another true story that inspired us to start Renaissance, and that's my story, how I came to faith. I'm about as native Short Hills as you can get. I was born here and grew up in Short Hills. I went to Pingree. At that time, it was in Hillside, New Jersey, before it moved. I went on to Princeton for undergrad. In fact, the only time I've spent away from Short Hills is the five years in graduate school at MIT, because when we came back down here for me to start work at Goldman in New York City, we moved to Short Hills. So I've been here more than 18 years since then. In fact, I figured that I've lived in five different houses in Short Hills over my life. Kind of interesting. Now, I must tell you that uh, Nancy is mortified that she not only lives in New Jersey, but her three kids were born in New Jersey. See, she grew up in Maine, and when she was a kid, they used to throw rocks at the cars which had New Jersey license plates on them. <laughs> but growing up, I had no belief in God or spiritual things, and frankly, I had no interest whatsoever in these subjects. I had no need to. I was talented and successful. I was valedictorian of my class at Pingree. I was a starting fullback on the soccer team. I was captain of the swim team. And I was a big believer in science as the root to all truth. I entered Princeton ready to conquer the world, just as any other self-confident, arrogant product of a cushy upper-class world would. Problem is, I very quickly fell head over heels for my freshman physics lab partner, Nancy was way smarter than I and seemed to have everything that I respected and longed for. She was the sharpest and most insightful and most determined and driven person that I knew. Now, as an aside, Nancy grew up in Maine, as I said, under very difficult circumstances. Her parents got divorced when she was four months old and basically abandoned her. She was raised by her paternal grandparents, who were very poor, displaced farmers. Now, her story is a, another message in and of itself. Feel free to just ask her about it sometime. But Nancy and I became friends. Well, more accurately, I pursued her and she barely tolerated me. <laughs> Boy, was there electricity in our physics lab. <laughs> well, when school was about to break for Christmas that uh, freshman year, 
She sent me a Christmas card and a note describing what Christmas meant to her. She explained that she believed the biblical account of God coming to earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who lived on earth to, tough, to, to teach, to suffer, and to die in our place so that God could satisfy his justice and mercifully make the way for us to have a personal relationship with him, is what she believed. I was blown away. I mean, how could the smartest, toughest person I know believe this baloney? I mean, I had lots of good reasons for objecting to Christianity. First, there were the intellectual problems with Christianity. I mean, everyone knew that there were numerous glaring errors and contradictions in the Bible. I mean, clearly no one believed the accounts of Noah and the ark, Moses parting the Red Sea, Jonah in the belly of the whale, and, of course, Jesus' miracles. And zealous Christians seem so unbalanced and narrow-minded. How could there only be one way to God? What about all the other religions in the world? How could a small number of not very intelligent people who blindly followed some obviously flawed teaching be right and the rest of the world wrong? When I was in high school and college, Eastern religions were really in. I mean, they were pretty cool. You remember the Tao with its cool symbol of yin and yang and the popular book uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Remember that? These are you know, very esoteric religions and, and mystical stuff that was pretty cool. I mean, who'd want to be caught dead to an antiquated, closed-minded, intellectually flawed religion like Christianity? And then there were the cultural aspects of Christianity that repelled me. Those airbrushed televangelists in polyester suits who I get glimpses of on TV, ranting and raving about what Jesus had done for them. I mean, all they wanted was my money anyway. I wanted no part of that scene. And why would I want to follow Jesus who tells me to turn the other cheek? I mean, how would I get anywhere in life if I was just going to be a doormat? After all, to any self-respecting intellectual, religion was the opiate of the masses for those too weak to control their own destiny, and it was a crutch. And these Christians, they didn't have a whole lot of fun. They didn't go to R-rated movies, they didn't drink, and they certainly didn't do any of the things that teenage boys dream about. How depressing. Boy, were they missing out on life. But perhaps most disturbing to me was their judgmental attitude. I mean, if you didn't believe exactly what they believed, you were going to hell, literally. And your friends and your family and your little dog, too. And they, the enlightened ones, were going to heaven. Well, who'd want to go there anyway? You don't get to have any fun. So I wanted nothing to do with religion and Christianity in particular. They were altogether untenable and unappealing. All right. So Nancy sends me this Christmas note. So I wrote her back a letter lambasting her beliefs. We've actually kept this letter to today. And in fact, here it is. Sort of a personal memento. Now, I, I wasn't going to read any of it to you, but I ended a little short in the first service. So, so I'm going to read my intro so you can get a flavor, flavor of my letter, Okay. Dear Nancy, Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> that, was, that was okay to start. 
When I listen carefully, you're going to love this. When I first read your note, I thought this girl is screwed up. After I read it the second time, I was sure you were screwed up. After I read it the third time, it made me think a little more. And believe me, zillions of thoughts have run through my head. You hit my vulnerable spot, religion. Not because I'm really religious, because I'm not. Not underlined. Or because I hate religion, because I don't have religion, true religion. But because it is something I have have always avoided confronting. And I go on. You know, in one of my conclusions, you see, you know, I was kind of this scientist guy. And so I was really into guys like Einstein. And so one of my conclusions here in this letter was quoting Einstein. So listen, I kind of identify with where he's coming from. Here's a quote from Einstein. I cannot imagine a God who rewards and punishes the objects of his creation, whose purposes are modeled after our own. A God, in short, who is but a reflection of human frailty. Neither can I believe that the individual survives the death of his body, although feeble souls harbor such thoughts through fear or ridiculous egotism. It is enough for me to contemplate the mystery of conscious life perpetuating itself through all eternity, to reflect upon the marvelous structure of the universe which we can dimly perceive, and to try humbly to comprehend even an infinitesimal part of the intelligence manifested in nature. You know, he's a thoughtful guy, pretty smart guy. So I, had, I thought I had some pretty good basis for my rejection of Christianity. Um, so you, you get a flavor of my letter. It was pretty obnoxious, right? Here, she revealed to me a very intimate and sensitive and profound part of herself, and I unloaded on her. I was a regular Romeo, wasn't I? <laughs> So I picked her her beliefs apart piece by piece. After all, any intellectual knew this stuff was bogus. And her response? Well, she told me that she had researched this and found it to be true. And surely I wouldn't dismiss it without examining the evidence. So she challenged me to read the Bible and study the topic to figure out what I believed. How could I say no? Here is this girl, my dream girl, who had it all together and especially had the thing that deep inside I was missing a purpose in life, something bigger than herself to live for. I had to. So over Christmas vacation, I read the New Testament of the Bible twice. I didn't understand a word in it, but I was trying. I was trying hard. And when school was back in session, I began to go to church with her on Sundays, and we'd come back and have brunch together at the school cafeteria, and I unloaded on her. I spent the whole brunch picking apart the sermon and the people at the church, everything that was wrong with it and them. And I pushed back on every point. I was relentless, but somehow Nancy hung in there with me. And over the course of about six months, I gradually changed. I talked more with some of the people at her church. Many of them were chemists and chemical engineers, and I was a chemical engineering major. And lo and behold, some of them were grad students at Princeton. And some of them were professors at Princeton. So their credibility gradually grew in my eyes. And what they said about the truth of the accounts in the Bible and the intellectual integrity of Christianity started making more sense. And most importantly, these people didn't wear polyester suits and they didn't make ridiculous claims. And beyond that, their lives seemed pretty balanced and pretty happy. They had great family lives, and that really appealed to me. 
My heart and my mind were softening, and I became more inclined to think of Nancy's faith as legitimate, worth considering. But it was pretty scary, because as it started making more sense, and as my objections to Christianity were being stripped away, I was confronted with one very direct and distasteful fundamental tenet of the faith, that even though I was created by God, I still needed a Savior in order to have a relationship with him. Now, what does that mean? It means that I, this ready-to-conquer-the-world, self-confident, high school valedictorian, Princeton you know, undergrad, was inadequate by myself. I needed to be reconciled to God. I thought and said and did things that violated God's moral character. I was self-oriented and sinful. Well, not completely, but enough that it was reprehensible to God, who is perfect and therefore can't tolerate sin. So to satisfy his justice, Jesus died to take the punishment that I deserved so that I could then be forgiven by God and enter into a relationship with him. This was a really hard pill for me to swallow. I didn't like it at all. I considered myself a good person. So this was pretty humbling. But I'd done the research, and it made intellectual sense. I'd grilled the people. They were credible, and they were admirable role models. I'd examined the practical applications of these truths, and they worked. So I had no choice. I had to take that step and commit myself to following Jesus. So by the end of my freshman year in college, I did just that. Now, it wasn't easy, and frankly, I wasn't really thrilled about having done it. I mean, many times you hear stories about people who are so excited when they accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not me. No way. No how. Because it meant my life might change a lot, you know. And I liked my life the way I was. Who wouldn't? And I was embarrassed to be associated with the televangelists. I was worried about what my friends might think that I'd sold out to a stupid, indefensible religion. See, I still had a long, long way to go to understand and embrace this faith. And that's why we titled the sermon Finding Faith Kicking and Screaming, because that's me up there with those shifty, mean eyes, taking the step of faith, but not really thrilled about it at the time. Well, it's been a long adventure, a lifelong adventure since that time, accompanied by a profound sense of peace, and purpose, and acceptance in relationship with God. I've benefited from wonderful guidance about practical everyday living, how to be a better husband and a better father, how to build better relationships. There have also been a lot of difficult times and periods of doubt, and that's okay. That's really okay. So as I think about my path to faith, there are several important elements First, it was a lengthy, multi-step, gradual process. God worked slowly and deliberately. I had a lot of objections, some valid, some that were smokescreens. And I needed to work through all of them to my own satisfaction at my own pace. Second, I would never have made this journey if Nancy hadn't prodded me in the first place to think about it and stuck with me as a loyal and patient friend all along the way. I mean, she cared enough about me to stick her neck out and put up with all my backlash. 
Third, I was exposed to other Christians with whom I could identify. They were smart and articulate about their beliefs. They were normal and caring and lived lives that I could respect and maybe even aspire to. And most of all, they were open to talking about my doubts and my questions. And in creating Renaissance, that's the kind of place we wanted to make it. A very positive environment where people would be welcome to explore their faith. So here's the key to Renaissance, for those of you who didn't know it. We're here primarily for our friends and our neighbors, the people in our communities who want to search for God, not for those who've already found him. We have great, lively rock music because we think it resonates with our culture. I mean, our friends go to Springsteen concerts, not the Metropolitan Opera. Heck, if they wanted to hear or sing Gregorian chants, we'd do that. Rich's messages are relevant and tuned into our lives. They're as free of Christian jargon as he can make them. I mean, sometimes he even gets a bit racy in his language, doesn't he? But that's okay, because that's real life. It's what we're hearing all day long in our offices, in our schools, wherever. And we have on staff professionals to lead our children's ministries, because the parents in our communities care more about their kids than they do about themselves. They will sacrifice everything to promote the welfare of their children. We try to make every service, every outing, every event geared to the person looking for God. The very name of our church, Renaissance, was chosen by our non-Christian friends. Sometime ask us about that story. It's kind of fun. But in approaching church this way, we often offend a lot of Christians who are established in their faith. They think we don't go deeply enough into theology. Well, we don't care. Why? I'll tell you. And this is the best kept secret about Renaissance. Yes, we're here primarily for those seeking after God, but we also are convinced that there's no better place to mature in your faith than Renaissance if you've committed your life to Jesus. No, you might not be learning all the doctrinal buzzwords that others are throwing around. Parenthetically, we'd encourage you to study all that stuff if you want. It's terrific. But those of you who have been around a while here have found that trying to love our friends and neighbors, your friends and neighbors, seeing them as Jesus does, as spiritually needy people, is an incredibly growing process. That's why we created in our list of core values, core value number two, an outward focus. And I will fight to the death to make sure that we never lose sight of it. I'm going to wrap up by telling you that starting Renaissance has been perhaps the hardest thing I've ever done. Sticking with it through all sorts of struggles in the early days, which, by the way, have lasted for five of the first six years, uh, has almost overwhelmed us a number of times. You can just ask any of the other people involved, Kathy and Tammy, Carol and Kate, Dan and Nancy, and even Steve and Victoria, who have been with us almost from the beginning. I mean, it has been really tough. I'll give you a very, almost a trivial example compared to some of the other challenges we had. For the first two or three years of our existence, we were a portable church. We didn't have this great facility. 
we used to have all of our equipment, you know, the, these lights, all the music equipment, chairs, kids, tables, and stuff uh, in trailers that were stored. These are like, you know, landscaping trailers that hold lawnmowers. We had all our stuff in there. And we'd have to haul it out and set it up um, at Milburn High School or Milburn Middle School for a service every Sunday and then pack it away and take it back. We used to have the service originally at 6 in the evening, and we would leave our house about noon to go, pick up the trailers, do the setup, and we'd end up back at our house about 9.30 after we packed everything away and got home every Sunday. And there were eight of us doing this. And, you know, in those days, we probably had more people in the band up front than we had in the chairs. And we would scratch our heads saying, are we crazy doing this? You know, is this useless? But we kept thinking about our inspirations for why we're doing this. We've stuck with it because we're inspired by the hope that Renaissance would be a unique and powerful place where our friends and neighbors would feel comfortable exploring their faith and where they'd find God. Just as I did in college, and just as I hope that someday Joan and Dan will. I really hope that you all buy into this mission and join us in it. Let's stand so we can close in prayer. And as we uh, stand and have our eyes closed, I want to ask each of you to picture in your mind just one friend or neighbor who is struggling with spiritual questions or practical questions, marriages, raising kids, whatever. And I'd ask you to commit in your heart today to help that person on their journey of faith. Pray for them. Talk with them. Be a loyal friend. And watch God work in their lives. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being the answer to our deepest longings in our hearts. Pray that you would go with us this week and help us to love you more and please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.